0: On April 21st, 2021, Patrick O'Shaughnessy tweeted out a request for clever customer acquisition strategies. He got over a hundred replies. And in this episode, we're going to look at five uh, clever customer acquisition strategies slash stories slash I'm not quite sure. Um, It seems straightforward. What is Customer acquisition, but like digging into it everything just kind of sort of fits like sometimes it's marketing sometimes it's positioning sometimes it's new products um, sometimes it's like all kinds of crazy goofy stuff I'm not sure you know there's this idea of customer acquisition cost and lifetime customer value um, and then you have to if you're running a business you have to mesh those two things and make sure you understand how they fit together. But what exactly is a customer acquisition strategy is a little ambiguous. Hopefully the five examples we look at in this podcast will explain it pretty well. Or at least give you some inspiration. It's 1938. The McDonald's brothers open up their first store. And at the time they were selling BBQ, PBJ, and pie oh and they had hamburgers too after the mcdonald's brothers noticed that burgers were the bulk of their sales they closed up for three months retooled and reopened with a focus on hamburgers milkshakes and french fries and it was the milkshakes that attracted the attention of a milkshake mixer salesman named ray crock in 1955. Uh, By 1961, Kroc had taken over McDonald's in a series of moves from the McDonald's brothers after first licensing and opening stores. Um, Eventually, he bought them out, and he tells that story uh, in his own book. And McDonald's may seem like a staid company if we look at it here in 2021, but during the growth, there was a lot of innovation, both from the top down and from the bottom up. Ray Kroc opens his book, writing it out with this quote. He, he wrote this, I have always believed that each man makes his own happiness and is responsible for his own problems. It is a simple philosophy. Kroc at the time, throughout his leadership, had a philosophy of, this might work, we'll test it. If it works, we'll do it. Um, one such example of that was in uh, 1962. Uh, 1962, Lou Groen, had a problem. See, Lou was a franchisee in a heavily Roman Catholic neighborhood outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. And the six or so Fridays during Lent, Grone's customers never showed up. Friday sales at the time for him would sometimes be a measly $75. And in a story that was published in the Cincinnati Inquirer, uh, Grone retells his story. This is what uh, they reported. So i invented my fish sandwich developed the special batter made the tartar sauce and took it to headquarters ray crock had a meatless sandwich too he called his sandwich the hula burger it was a cold bun and a slice of pineapple and that was it ray said to me well lou i'm going to put your fish sandwich on a menu for a friday but i'm going to put my special sandwich on too whichever sells the most that's the one we'll go with friday came and the word came out i won hands down i sold 350 fish sandwiches that day ray never did tell me how his sandwich did the filet-o-fish was one of many bottom-up additions to the mcdonald's menu others include uh, the shamrock shake the egg mcmuffin the big mac and the happy meal fast forward again to 1976. We're going to head down to Guatemala, where Fernandez Cofino and her husband go to work at the first and almost bankrupt McDonald's in Guatemala. They do all the basic stuff when you're trying to turn around a restaurant, cleaning, staffing, marketing. And they also fiddle with the McDonald's menu just a bit. They make this thing called the Menu Ronald. And what this is going to be is it's going to be a specific menu for kids with smaller things for them, with with a different arrangement. We can think of it as like a kid's combo meal. And so, like the fish sandwich a decade, decade and a half before, the idea makes it to McDonald's corporate in Chicago, who ask their advertiser, Bob Bernstein, what he might do with it. What do we do with this menu, Ronald? How can we do the equivalent of the filet fish sandwich and test and figure out if this is going to work. So Bernstein is thinking about it. He's got this account with McDonald and um, he retells this story where it's, it's a Saturday morning. He's sitting at home, he's drinking his coffee and he's watching his son eat breakfast. And what do kids eat in the 1970s? They eat cereal. And what does every person do when they eat a bowl of cereal? they read the cereal box. Bernstein realized was that kids wanted something to do while they were eating. And so the idea of the Happy Meal coming in a box, you know, you've got these kid-sized portions, and it's going to come in this box, and there's going to be a little activity, and eventually there would, they would go on to be a toy in there. Um, and the meals um, at first offered McDonald's-themed trinkets like watches and wallets, and they eventually they expanded to other areas like um, Mc, uh, just generic toys, themed toys, movie tie-ins, zeitgeist toys, and even in 1999, um, beanie babies. And uh, depending on what year and what era, it seems like McDonald's Happy Meals account for anywhere between 10% and 30% of sales. Um, it's kind of hard to tell based on some superficial uh, Google searching. And so we have this Happy Meal uh, that gets introduced in 1979 across the United States, and it came from tinkering. And I don't know if that's like customer acquisition, but it's a really neat way of thinking about we have these things, what's a way we can repackage these things, that we can be more specific about these things, and, and maybe uh, maybe they'll sell better. Next stop is going to be 1993. Sha la 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 man. It's funny looking back at the early 90s because uh, technology was like so different back then. It was prevalent. It was in the zeitgeist. People were aware of it, but it just didn't exist everywhere. Like we didn't have. All of these phones and cameras and devices sitting around everywhere. Uh, I remember our family got our first computer somewhere like in 93, 94. The first game I remember playing was this game called Math Blaster in Search of Spot. Um, Obviously, we got a computer because it was an educational device and you had to have a computer so your kids were computer literate. It, It looking back and having kids now it's a lot of the a lot of the same stories we tell now and we moved on from math blaster to warcraft uh the computer i remember our first computer with a cd rom uh had a cd encyclopedia and it had a lot of stuff but it didn't have everything (laughs) it's just it was so wild to think like i remember searching for things and it had a clip of the moon landing uh, where the astronaut is moving across the screen, and it had the Martin Luther King Jr. "I Have a Dream" speech, and it had some things that were really cool that uh, that you just didn't have access to on demand. But there were like lots of things that it didn't have. You could search for things, and it would just say, "You know, we don't have this," and you'd have to go to the library or the encyclopedia or something else. So it was it was incomplete. Um, you couldn't get everything on there to to get more computer software you had to go to a store like circuit city or best buy or office max and the boxes were on shelves and you remember these boxes were just so large just think think about your laptop like like closed and then standing on edge and then having it be like two inches thick that was a computer box and all that was in there was like discs and um and like three and a half inch uh little cassette discs and the manual and so um, that's what 1993 technology was like. And so like, it was a thing, but people didn't have access to it. You had this like transmission problem of getting the the bits onto your local system. And so this is around the time that Jan Brandt arrives at uh, America Online. And their first push was this direct-to-consumer um, direct mailing uh, small box. And this is what... Uh, Ms. Brant said on the Internet History Podcast. We started packaging them, this is the installation disc for AOL, in boxes and tins and things like that. It was my absolute belief that you could not send someone a package in the mail. And I don't mean an envelope. I mean a package that you could feel and not open it. I felt that it was constitutionally impossible for someone to get a small box in the mail and not be inspired to open it. Uh, Brant goes on to say that this campaign was a huge success. I've done a lot of first campaigns and launched a lot of products. I have never. This was beyond imagination. The overall response to that campaign was a staggering 10 percent uptake uptake. And remember, this isn't people who are saying, I think I want this. These are people who are taking the disc, putting it into the computer, signing up and giving us a credit card. The top list for that I have ever seen in my life before or since was a 20 percent response. It was stratospheric. And so um those AOL discs were, were just everywhere back in the nineties, even into the aughts. I think you could you would find them just, just all kinds of places. You can get on the internet and it's like what to do with my old AOL discs because these, these free trials were just uh were just crazy. And Part of it came from Brandt's idea to to send these things in the mail to get them in people's hand. Um, and part of it was Steve Case's idea. Steve Case, uh, in one interview said that you know he had worked at procter and gamble and one of the best ways to get people to try new products like shampoo and cosmetics was to send samples in magazines you can think of that small little tube that comes in a magazine maybe it's an ounce maybe less um and the thinking was um at the time for aol was that they wanted to they they were willing to pay a customer acquisition cost of 10 percent of a customer's lifetime value and at the time Uh, The lifetime value of what they found to be a customer was 25 months of AOL payments or $350. And so they were willing to spend uh, $35 per customer to uh, acquire a customer. And at the time, AOL was responsible for uh, manufacture of half of all of the cds in the world all of the cd manufacturing at one point in the 1990s was driven by aol making those free discs and it was them taking something that had worked in one area this uh, direct mailing idea this send a shampoo sample in a magazine idea and applying it to uh, the aol product to get that in people's hands our next stop is going to be 1996 In a regular reminder that things have not always been as they are, let me share this techno anecdote. Back in like 97, 98, 99 era, the internet was so early, no one quite knew what services were best. My super cutting edge English teacher, Mrs. Housepian, offered a web design club slash class at... The school that i was at and each week we would come in and actually like offer website suggestions i remember at the time that internet search engines if someone found a new internet search engine uh they would come in and they would share it like oh will try yahoo try this try that and at the t- at the time there's this search engine called metacrawler which was like the best search engine uh for finding what you wanted on a relatively small internet in comparison Um, so also in that 1996 landscape was hotmail founded by sabir bahatia and jack smith and it was it was i didn't know this at the time hotmail Hotmail was named after html like the protocol html hotmail Um, um and along with other early web services like metacrawler they had to figure out how do we acquire users how do we get this customer acquisition in a clever way as patrick uh, said um so sabir and jack uh, look at they build the product and they show it to their venture investors and the investors say looks looks good but how are you going to get the word out how are you going to um to get people and, they, and it's like you can't advertise this because like advertising a free product and then how are you going to monetize it um it's just it's just not going to fit so you got to find a better way to get your customers and uh and so uh, Smith and uh, Bahita, they're not quite sure what to do. So uh, they talked to their uh, VC, Tim Draper. Uh, he had finished up his um, Harvard MBA in 1984, and he's trying to figure them, help them figure out a way to, uh, to market their product, to get it in users' hands. And uh, Draper remembered uh, doing a case study and business school about women holding parties for their friends and then selling items to each other, like a Tupperware party. And a certain percentage of the women at each party became salespeople by referring more business. And so that Tupperware model was kind of the model that he wanted to do. Um, In the uh, TechCrunch article, this is um, how Draper recalls it. Uh, Jack, Draper said, "Uh, could you put a message at the bottom of everybody's screen? And then the founders didn't want to do that and then uh, draper says but can you technically do it like can you just include this line of text on the bottom that everyone sees and and the developers are like yeah technically we can but like we don't want to do it and so draper says okay great and and you can persist right like if you put it on one person and they send it email to someone else like it'll be on that one too and the and the founders um are like, yeah, yeah, we can totally do that, but we definitely don't want to do that. So we have the venture capitalists using this Tupperware model to, like, send emails and having uh, emails go from one person to the other and always having the same kind of a footer on there. So um, Hotmail launches in 1996 with, without the message, without any kind of a footer on the bottom. And uh, and so at their next meeting with their venture capitalists, the founders meet with Draper, and he's like, hey, um, we should we should do this. And Bahitia and Smith are like, no, we don't want to do that. And Draper's like, listen, it's not that risky. If it doesn't work, we can always take it off. It's just code. Um, and he's like, I think we should put PS, I love you. Sign up for your free Hotmail account. And the guys are like, we're not putting PS, I love you. And Draper's like, fine, just, just put, uh, get your free email at Hotmail at the bottom and they're like fine we'll do that And so two months after the email signature is added signups um, rise exponentially from hundreds a day to thousands and six months after instituting the email footer uh, they have a million users a month after a month after that they have two million users and so that little hotmail footer Uh, was really helpful with discovery. I mean, back at the time, you were paying for email accounts. Email wasn't free. All this free internet stuff, you know, you watch a pre-roll YouTube ad, um, you have your free Gmail account, you get two gigabytes of photo storage on, you know, whatever website. None of that existed. Even in the early 2000s, we have to remember that, like, things like online bill pay at your bank were services, like, you paid for those were add-ons those were not table stakes at your bank and so this was really a developmental time where businesses were trying to find customers they were trying to find fit and hotmail as a free email account was something that seemed like a really good idea and this email signature um email signature worked so let's fast forward a decade to 2007 and the sent from the iPhone idea. And I looked around and I thought for sure that the email footer on sent from an iPhone was going to have roots. There was going to be a developer at Apple who gave an interview and said, yeah, we were really inspired by what Hotmail did in 1996 and we were going to do that. And, and it, just, it just wasn't there. There was nothing like that. Um, However, what the sent from the iPhone email signature seems to do is it seems to make people a little more forgiving about it. Um, In one study, when researchers looked at email signatures that didn't have that, and they looked at email signatures that did, people were more understanding about uh, misspellings in an email or grammatical issues. and, and that that makes sense if we think about the medium affecting what the message is. And uh, I thought that was that was an interesting angle even though it may not be part of this uh, customer acquisition story. For our next example, we're going to head to 1999. Man, I love that Lenny Kravitz song. But wait, wait. Did I say 99? (laughs) We need to go back to 1983. In 1983, the situation that we're looking at is we have the Sony Betamax um, we have the RCA VHS. And by 1983, the VHS had won over the Betamax player, and they were in about 10% of homes. Two years later, that number climbed to 30% of homes. And the as VHS climbs to be in more and more homes, uh, Blockbuster opens its doors, and the home rental revenue uh, business tops box office revenues for the first time ever at just under $4 billion a year. Uh, and so that's the scene in the mid 80s, late 80s. We have this economic uh, business model where uh, home video rentals are pretty popular. We have people having VHS players in their homes. And um, by 1995, Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings are in the earnout phase of a series of Silicon Valley acquisitions. So, um, they're at their previous company, they're earning out, they're not sure what they want to do next, and they're talking about business ideas and going back and forth, uh, Randolph and Hastings wonder about an e-commerce, video rental business, but the economics weren't really there. The, the system at the time was you got your VHS movies from the supplier, and sometimes those prices were like $90 for uh, a release. You couldn't just go down to Kmart and, and buy VHS at the time. Um, so, uh, entered the DVD, and like records, cassettes, and CDs, um, Mark or Reed could walk into a store and just, just buy one. And in an interview with uh, bizjournals.com slash San Jose, Randolph uh, recalled this. One of the founding myth stories that is actually very true is that Reed and I did go down to Logos in Santa Cruz and bought a UCD and then went to one of the little gift shop stores on Pacific Avenue. We bought ourselves one of those little blue envelopes that you put the greeting cards in, and we mailed the CD to Reed's house. We go up the steps to the Santa Cruz post office and dropped it in with a single first-class stamp. And by the next day, when he came to pick me up, he had the envelope in his hand. It had gotten to his house with the unbroken CD in it. That was the moment where the two of us looked at each other and said, this idea just might work. So we have a combination of things that is shifting the possibility of Netflix. Netflix isn't just a good idea. It's a good idea based on the existing system that's around it. First, we need this new technology of DVDs because VHS are gonna be way too expensive to mail. Um, Second, we need a way to get DVDs rather than paying $90 for VHS we have to be able to go down to Costco or Kmart or Best Buy or wherever and be able to buy one of these. Uh, Third, we also need people to have something to play these things on. We look at it, and by the mid-'80s, VHS were everywhere. But by 2000, DVD players were not everywhere. That's 15 years of, like, really successful, like, a great run for VHS players. Um, I couldn't quite remember, like... How prevalent dvd players were in the 2000s like i can remember those computer games from the 90s but when we switched from vhs to dvd uh, i couldn't remember one best buy advertisement from july 2000 shows um, four handheld camcorders from like four to nine hundred dollars with financing uh, it advertises a panasonic vhs player for 99 dollars, and a phillips dvd player was on sale for 200 dollars um The James Bond DVD was $20. Um, It's amazing looking at that Best Buy ad from 2000, like how important music was at the time because there were like pages and pages of portable CD players, car stereo systems, MP3 players, um, stereo systems with like the three and five disc trays. Music was like super, it must have been really economical, a good return on your investment to advertise all that music stuff in the in the Sunday circulars. And so um, we have uh, 1983, VHS starts to take off. Um, around that same time, VHS rentals surpassed box office revenues. Uh, 95, Reed and um, Mark get the idea for Netflix. The the system is, is starting to shift where we can buy these DVDs. Um, by 2001, Blockbuster is... Shifting from VHS to DVD rentals, they're uh, dedicating about one fourth of their floor space for DVDs, three fourths for uh, for VHS, and so it's around that time we're we're catching the wave. If if you're like a surfer, or you're like me and my kids, and and you go uh, like boogie boarding or body surfing, like you see it coming, you see like a wave shifting. Um, and what's really funny is the way Reed Hastings see these these waves sequentially, but you see the wave coming in you're like okay we gotta we gotta time this, we gotta get this right um, so around two thousand and one, Patty McCord, who has been with Netflix um, since like really early on with Mark Randolph and reed hastings um she she's with the company and she's like, "Okay, how do we shift to the dVD program This is what she told Barry Ritholtz on Masters in Business. I thought it was ridiculous. You know, he was the only. There were three people I knew that had DVD players, and they were all geeks like him. This is Reed Hastings, and I had three kids in a house full of VHS tapes. Right, there was no way I was going to give up that space on my bookshelf. Um, around the same time, Netflix had to lay off about a third of the staff after the dot-com uh, popping, that dot-com bubble popping after uh, 9/11, 2001. Um, and and so like it's kind of dire but like that wave is coming in so if you really want to hit it now's the time um patty mccord said that that 2001 season um the cost of dvd players dropped it it became the hit gift of of that christmas and the business took off and part of the reason it took off like maybe kind of sort of helping was that netflix had gone to the consumer electronic shows and partnered with a ton of manufacturers and they were including coupons for rentals from Netflix in the DVD player boxes and um, like it's kind of hard to tell how much this helped like you know as if something becomes the gift there's a cultural wave that will carry it in but um, there's this like consumer ambiguity aversion where people don't like the unknown we just like are not comfortable with okay, so I'm going to buy this DVD player, and then and then what? Like, I've got all these VHS tapes. What am I going to watch? Does my store, you know, does my local video store even have DVD rentals? Are they going to scratch? Like, there's all this ambiguity, and I think there was a psychological carry on, oh, I'm going to buy this, and then I get to try this Netflix thing out. So um, it just kind of, like, ticks a box for a consumer. It gets them, it gets them thinking that. Uh, by 2002, Netflix is sending out 100,000. DVDs a week. Uh, by 2003, Bill Gurley is writing in some of his letters about a $43 DVD player at Walmart. Um, that same year, DVD rentals pass, VHS rentals. Um, and <laughs> this is so fast. By 2005, DVD sales will top out at $16 million. Like, so we have 2001, where uh, Christmas of 2001, where DVD players are like the hit gift. And by 2005... They've peaked. VHS players had like fifteen solid year run, and DVDs are like, eh. um, and by two thousand seven, Netflix offers streaming. And um, I really love the way that uh, Mark Randolph describes this period in this interview, um, and he says that Netflix wanted to define their culture. They wanted to define what their brand was, and they settled on movies you love. And that's like such a great expression because it's not movies by mail. It's not movie streaming. It's it's movies you love. And that focuses the consumer. It focuses the people internally in Netflix. It's just beautiful. And, and if you really dig into Netflix, what a lot of these people say, what Mark Randolph says, what Patty McCord says, what head of content Ted Sarandos says is that Hastings always wanted to get to streaming. He always wanted it to come over your internet service providers' cables into your house directly to the consumer. That was the end goal. And it just so happened that um, in the early 2000s and in the late 90s, the cheapest way to get content into a consumer's home was a first class stamp in a blue or what became a red envelope and so that's the way that they started but the goal was always to get to this streaming point and and that's ultimately where they made it and um and so this netflix coupon in the boxes um i don't know how much of a customer acquisition strategy that was but i definitely think it helped on what was really um, a beautifully timed story next up 2004. God, the nostalgia is dripping off of all of these songs. Um, and actually, this like 2004 is when this example of customer acquisition strategies like is implemented. But like all of these other ones, it goes back in time. We have to go back to uh, 1991 when. Rich Barton is a product manager for MS DOS Five. And as a product manager, Barton is traveling a lot. He's got to go out. He's got to see people. Uh, There wasn't so much software on the internet in 1991. He's got to go out and he's got to see people. He's got to interact. And Barton says that he would call the corporate travel office at Microsoft. He would hear clicking of a keyboard. And he knew that they were looking at a screen. And he was talking with them about booking his itinerary. But Barton says that he wanted to see that screen himself. And so there was this barrier, in this case the corporate travel agent, that was between Barton and and what he wanted to do, the information that he wanted. So um, Microsoft was small enough at the time that Barton um, goes to Bill Gates. He says, "Bill, I want to. I'm thinking about doing this, uh, this travel thing. We'll build it inside of Microsoft." Gates says, "Okay." Barton gets funding in 1994. Uh, Expedia.com ships to the web in 1996, and uh, by 1999, uh, they want to acquire customers through advertising. At the time, Barton asked Gates for a hundred million dollars, and it worked. Uh, In 2003, the company was purchased by Barry Diller and IAC, and um, Barton served as an executive for a while and then moved to Florence, Italy. So um, at the time, just like with AOL, there was a lot of people, they were ready, you had to reach all of them. Fast forward to 2004, Barton is back in the United States, and he's looking for a home, him and his Expedia.com co-founders. Um, they took some time off they got away from work Um, now they're looking for homes they've got this money from their experiences and their uh, efforts and so um, they're wondering why are home prices why are homes why is home information so hard to find and it's it's just like the travel situation but it's going to be for homes and so rich uh, barton co founds Zillow and he earns uh, and so and this time he wants to um do marketing again. It worked for Expedia. You know, he spent a hundred million dollars in uh, 1999 money. Um, and it worked. Expedia was a successful company. So it was a successful company. Um, so he goes to Bill Gurley and, and Bill Gurley tells him that's not going to work. Um, and Barton's like, why is that? And Bill Gurley's like, well, you're you're buying ads so that you could sell ads. So the business models were different, even though the company's inspiration was the same, you know, there's information. I want to give information to the consumers. The business models were totally different. With Expedia, uh, the model was to take a fee or a markup or a cutback or referral on each transaction. Pay $250 for a hotel room. Expedia gets some portion of that. But the business model at Zillow was to aggregate the listings and have realtors pay for space on the site. So if you're a consumer and you search homes in Fort Wayne, Indiana, there would be ads for local realtors purchased by those local realtors for the people who were searching. And those realtors could help you find a home. It was going to be collaborative. Everyone was going to win. The problem that uh, Barton (laughs) says, Gurley says that if you're buying ads to sell ads, then you're arbitraging traffic and that dog don't hunt very long. So it's it's an interesting contrast that even though the inspiration for Expedia and Zillow, and then as Barton would have found later, Glassdoor, it was a really similar inspiration, the business models had changed. So the strategy for going to market and acquiring to customers had to change as well. So, what are the lessons? Like, what are the takeaways? First, you have to create something people want. All products we see work to some degree. But some are better fits for the job to be done than others. The better product solves a job to be done, the less it needs a clever customer acquisition tool. The Happy Meal, for instance, was all the basics simply repurchased and it fit the job to be done really well. The second lesson is ask how this problem has been solved before. Tupperware inspired a Hotmail email signature. The canonical example, as far as internet business goes, is the Zappos pitch, where Tony Shea recalls that when someone came in and was selling him on a website to buy shoes from, he's like, that'll never work. And this person pitching him was like, people already do it all the time when they order from magazines. And Shea was like, oh, oh, then it does work. People will buy shoes without necessarily trying them on. And the third lesson that we can learn from this is test and see. Often the cost for a clever customer acquisition is less than what it might appear to be. The Cincinnati filet of fish Sandwich, for example, cost 30 cents in fish to make. By the time it made it to Ray Kroc, Croc said they just had to get the price down to twenty five cents as a sweet spot for where the business model would work. So even though it might seem like testing and fiddling and doing this other stuff is expensive, It might not be that hard once you really get it out there and see how people react. Thanks for listening to this episode.